How moving and how powerful are the hymns, the songs of praise that we sing. The last verse of the last song we just finished singing certainly is evidence of that. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to tell it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. We are telling the old story, blessed to live and be saved by the old story, and we will be forever in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who gave us the story. How amazing the story is. I'm going to ask Lynn and Terry to come up here if they don't mind. Please come up, fellas. Polishing the Pulpit had 5,500 people this year, uh, a record attendance. There were men, come on up, come on up. There were men uh, and women from 40 of the 50 states present and 10 foreign countries. The elders make it possible for Adam and for his family and for Sheree and me uh, to go. And they represent the kindness and the goodness of this congregation. At the end of PTP, a thumb drive is given of all the lessons. I want to give our shepherds each that thumb drive. And I know I speak on behalf of Adam and his family and Cherie and me to say thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that so very much. But that's not all that's happening. Go ahead, you go. You can stay if you want to. I, I, can, I can take Aaron and her standing up, helping me anytime. But because of your kindness and that of the shepherds, the thumb drives will also be given to all the students at Bear Valley Bible Institute, at Brown Trail School of Preaching and Southwest School of Preaching. And we would have given them to others, but a number of them were already represented at Polishing the Pulpit. But we're not going to stop there. People like Justin Bell and David Vestal and others will be getting the thumb drive too. And so will a number of you. Thank you. Don't mess with the gospel. Don't mess with the gospel. That is in one short, compelling sentence what the book of Galatians is all about. Don't mess with the gospel. When we cease to be God-centered, God-focused, and God-preeminent, when we cease being God-centered, God-focused, and God-preeminent, we are taking the first step into idolatry.
That's exactly what we're doing. And if we are going to plead properly for the restoration of New Testament Christianity, we need to begin with the fact that the Godhead reveals the Bible and the Bible reveals the Godhead. And therefore, we've got to be God-centered, God-focused, and have a God-preeminent view of all things. The message of Galatians is freedom. Freedom. For freedom did Christ set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and be not again entangled in a yoke of bondage. Galatians 5 and verse 1. It is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, letter of the Apostle Paul. And it is a book that is convicting. It contains a number of rebukes. Because Paul understood the very nature of the gospel to be at stake as it concerns those that he was addressing in the letter. The Bible would say, for freedom did Christ set us free, there in Galatians 5.1. But if Christ makes you free, then are you free indeed, John 8.31-36. What is the freedom and liberty from in the book of Galatians? What does the gospel liberate us from in the book of Galatians? From sin. From sin. Jesus and his gospel free us from sin. Secondly, Jesus and his gospel free us from the law of Moses. He takes away the first, Hebrews 10, 9 and 10, that he might establish the second. But third, Jesus and his gospel take us away and liberate us from the traditions of men. Freedom, liberty, from sin, from the traditions of men, from the law of Moses. And get this, when you look at the book of Galatians, there is no liberty, no freedom outside of Jesus and the gospel. No freedom outside of Jesus and his gospel. No matter where you look. Now what happens is this, we don't know everything that there is to know about the opponents that Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. And if someone claims to, they claim to know more than what's revealed in the text, ironically. But we do know this about them. It seems that much like in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, there were people who were saying, you need to believe and repent and be baptized, that's for sure. But you also need to be circumcised and to observe various aspects of the old law. And if you don't, you are not really complying with the will of God. And really what they're saying is this, and imagine this. 
you have to undergo a pretty drastic surgical procedure if you're a male in order to be a faithful Christian. And some people were doing that because they truly wanted to be right with God. When becoming a Christian could get you killed. Submitting to a surgical procedure like this. These individuals had bewitched a number of the Christians in Galatia. Galatians 3 and verse 1. But in reality, they would be shutting them out of God's kingdom, Galatians 4 and verse 17, if they listened and bought in to these teachers' teaching. We're going to go through the book of Galatians over the next three weeks, one chapter at a time, six chapters in all. Don't mess with the gospel. Look at chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2. The gospel defended. That's what these two chapters are about. The gospel defended. If you mark in your Bibles, it might be good to jot that down. The gospel defended in the first two chapters. What these teachers were saying about Paul is that his authority and apostleship were less than the original 12. In other words, he's a second-rate, second-class apostle. Another thing that we know that they were saying about him is that his message was warped and incomplete. They said his message was warped and incomplete because he was not emphasizing circumcision for Gentile males who came to Jesus. He wasn't encouraging the observance of various aspects of the law. But they didn't stop at just his authority and apostleship and his message and his proclamation. They also spoke out against his character and even his conversion to Christ. I guess that goes to show, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Luke 6, 26. Because Paul cared deeply for these people, yet a number of them were quite frankly stabbing him in the back, but even more, Jesus. The gospel defended chapters 3 and 4. The gospel explained. The gospel explained... In these sections, he goes into length to describe how the gospel is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets were looking for and how one embraces the gospel of Jesus, how one gets into Christ. Chapters 5 and 6, the gospel applied. The gospel must be generously applied to our daily living. The gospel is not only something that we respond to initially, it continues to make its impact on us on a daily basis. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 
Don't mess with the gospel. What I'd like to do now is take chapter 1 and divide it into three basic parts, which I think you'll be able to see in your uh, translation as you follow along. We'll be dealing with Paul's authority and apostleship. The gospel and Paul's authority and apostleship. That's one through five. We'll be dealing with Paul's message and proclamation. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. The gospel and Paul's message or proclamation, 6 through 10. Then third, the gospel and Paul's conversion and character. Verses 11 through 24. So let's focus first of all on the gospel and Paul's authority and apostleship. These opening two verses, though an introduction, a lot of times people get to an introduction or a conclusion of a New Testament book and they pass over it. I want you to know that in these opening verses, he launches the opening missile to blow up the conflict that is hurting the church. That's what he's doing. These people are questioning my authority and apostleship, claiming it's not on a level of the twelve. Notice what he says. Paul, an apostle, not of men or through men. You see that? Not of men or through men, but of Jesus Christ and our Father. Notice what he is saying about the gospel. Notice what he is saying about his authority. Consider, first of all, the godness of the gospel. The godness of the gospel. There is immediate reference made to Jesus Christ and to the Father Subsequent reading of this book will show considerable emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. The Godhead reveals the Word of God to us and the Word of God reveals the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. A gospel is less than the gospel of God, the Godness of the gospel when it does not fully embrace the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as God. Y'all got that? It's not two persons in an it. The Godhead is not two persons in a thing. The Godhead has been revealed in Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's not the Father, Jesus being junior, and the Holy Spirit being the Holy Parakeet. He's called the Paraclete or Parakletos in Greek. Each person is fully God. So says Scripture. Not only do you see the godness of the gospel, 
you see the fellowship of, gospel, of the gospel. We all are brethren. The brethren with us. We're made family by the gospel. My authority and apostleship is crucial because I'm dealing with what makes people part of the family of God. I'm dealing with the godness of the gospel. And then, the grace of the gospel. And what the book of Galatians does marvelously in my judgment is it tells legalists who think that it all depends on us and our ability to keep God's word so well. We're not perfect, but we're just pretty close. It helps us to run to the gospel for grace. And on the other hand, it helps people who are like the prodigal. The book of Galatians is great for legalists who think that it all depends on us, but it's also great for prodigals who waste and treat frivolously the blessings of a father. What a great book Galatians is to study then. It is the gospel of the grace of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. It is the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20 and verse 24. One page prior to this, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 10, 29. Don't insult it. Do injury to that. The godness of the gospel the fellowship of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, and then notice in the passage, the peace of the gospel. This peace is made possible by Jesus who gave himself for our sins, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age, and who was raised from the dead by the Father in this passage, verses 1 through 5. What's at stake in the gospel? The godness of God. Fellowship with God and one another, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. The grace of God, yes. Peace with God and with others, John 14, 27. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And notice this, the glory of God is at stake. You see it? To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, say what you might about me, but do not try to undermine my credentials as an apostle because they didn't come from men or through men, but from the revelation of God himself. And don't mess with the gospel. And at this point, that's exactly what he sees these individuals doing with the early Christians there in the churches of Galatia. Number two. Oh, by the way, before I get off of this, if God could use Paul... I imagine he could use any of us. Think about Paul's conversion. 
God is someone who takes Saul's, what he was formerly known as, and transforms us into Paul's. How does he do that? By Jesus and his gospel. That's how. Now, we're not apostles like Paul was, but we're servants. We're blessed beyond measure. Our cups overflow, Ephesians 1.3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here is this man who killed Christians, persecuted Christians, delivered them to prison, and it's one of the great stories of what Christianity can do in all the New Testament. Because if Paul's life was so transformed by Jesus and his gospel, ours can be too. And thank God for that. Number two, verses 6 through 9 especially, but this will go through uh, uh, verse 10. The gospel and Paul's message or proclamation. When you look at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9... In every translation that I am familiar with, the word gospel occurs at least one time in all of those passages. Six, seven, eight, and nine. And verse 7 is a pivotal verse in the entire discussion of the message and proclamation. These individuals are saying who are critical of Paul that his message is not the full information. It's not the whole story. And Paul says in verse 7 that there are some who trouble you, mark that, and who distort the gospel of Christ, trouble you. They're causing heart trouble and anxiety in these churches with their teaching by insisting that Gentile Christians must be circumcised and observe various aspects of the law by insisting that Paul is some kind of second-rate follower of Jesus that really shouldn't be listened to. That's causing trouble among you, heart trouble within the church. And not only that, it's causing a twisting of the truth because they distort the gospel. It seems to me that those of us who preach could always go toward extremes in our proclamation. There are some, and there always have been, and I suspect there will be until the Lord comes back, that kind of tailor their message to make everybody feel good. More about that when we get to verse 10. And they, they, they're, they're not people that enjoy conflict. They're non-confrontational, maybe by nature. Yet they are so non-confrontational that they allow the gospel to get distorted and warped.
Pick your battles wisely or you'll be battling all the time. But I tell you what, if you don't pick any battles, you're spineless. If you don't pick any battles, you're a coward. If you won't speak up when the gospel of God is at stake, the godness of God, the, the fellowship of God and with God and His people, grace of God, peace of God... The glory of God. When these matters and others are at stake, if one doesn't speak up, one is a coward. Especially those of us who mount the pulpit. But the other extreme is the extreme that enjoys controversy. They are the in-your-face basher. And they do not perceive that they are doing the work of God unless they are bashing somebody. And it's a consistent diet of that, of every ism, asm, and spasm among us. I want you to know that just as it's possible for a preacher to be spineless, it's also possible for him to be heartless. And I don't read anywhere in my Bible that calling people stupid and idiots throughout lessons consistently really is what God wants. I don't read that anywhere in my Bible. Even when a person has to show conviction and spine, we must ever beware of arrogance and lovelessness. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. You know, in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, when Solomon got old, this wise man was led astray by his foreign wives. That's tragic, isn't it? The wisest man outside of Jesus who has ever lived was led away from God when he should have been the one drawing others closer to him. And when we get to Galatians, false teachers are leading people away from Jesus and his gospel. And the text begins with Paul's alarm, apostolic alarm and astonishment. I am amazed. I am astonished that this is going on. That reveals both his heart and his backbone. Whether you are a preacher or not, Blessed are the balanced who know when to show backbone and spine and to also do that with love and concern. How serious is this matter? If you listen to Troy in the scripture reading, he said that they were guilty of deserting Jesus and his gospel. Look at Galatians 1.6. They were deserting him to desert the gospel that he made a reality is to desert him. That's serious. It's to desert him. Secondly, it is a different gospel. Third, from verse 7, it is a troubling gospel that they declare. 
Fourth, is it is a distorted gospel that they declare. Fifth, it is a contrary gospel that they are proclaiming. And sixth, it is an accursed gospel that they are proclaiming. Don't mess with the gospel of Christ. It's serious. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Now that's going to be a question that's brought out a number of times. Not of men, not through men. Am I seeking the approval of men? Do I want to please men? And here's the idea. Is the goal of my proclamation of the message to have the approval of my hearers? Or to have the approval of the teachers that were teaching these things that were contrary to the gospel in Galatians. Or to have the approval of a certain segment of the brotherhood. Paul says, my goal, my aim, my aspiration is to have the approval of God. Second Corinthians 5, 9, we have this as our aim, our goal, our aspiration, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Some people count heads and do what is popular. Men and women of God look to God and His Word and do what is right regardless of what anyone else does. My role here is not necessarily to please you, though I love you, and y'all have been so good to me over the years. My role here is not necessarily to please any segment of the brotherhood. My role here is to declare the saving gospel message of Jesus and his love. That's Adam's role too. And I believe godly shepherds want it that way. And members of the body of Christ will insist it be that way. Who am I aiming at? And notice what Paul says. And this is one of the most awful indictments. He says, if I please men, if I make it my primary goal when I preach and teach to make everybody happy or to please select individuals, he says, I am not God's servant. And that's true not only of those of us who mount a pulpit, it's true of those of you who are in a pew too. The questions asked in verse 10 convict us and expose us. 
some have a lot of heat and not very much light. Some know what is right, but do not have enough backbone to proclaim it. Number three from verses 11 through 24. In this section, Paul deals with the matter of his character and his conversion. And see, all three issues that were being undermined by false teachers, Paul's apostolic credentials and his authority, Paul's message and proclamation, and now his very character and and his conversion. You know, if anybody should have stood with these Judaizing teachers, you'd have thought it would have been the Apostle Paul if it had the slightest shred of biblical truth behind it because wasn't he a Pharisee? I'm sure he encouraged Gentiles to be circumcised and to observe various aspects of the law back when he was a Pharisee, don't you? And maybe there was something in him and his past and the traditions that he had grown up with that made him think maybe that... And no, he would not think like that because the gospel of God would not allow him. Now let's look at these verses. And when you look at Galatians 1, 11 through 24, you are the greatest advertisement for Jesus and his gospel or you're not in your life. You're the greatest advertisement for Jesus and his gospel or you're not. I believe that with all my heart, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, of Paul, to New Testament Christianity is one of the most powerful apologetic proofs that it's true. And when you look at this, along with the conversion of of James, the Lord's brother, his half-brother, they are incredible accounts of conversion from the least likely of people. Notice verses 13 and 14, number one. The conversion of Saul was against all odds. He opposed the church. Think of the kind of man he was. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. His coming to Jesus was against all odds. And secondly, you'll see in verse 14, it was against pride. Don't you think he had to swallow his pride? I'd advanced farther than a lot of my peers in the same age group. I had violently opposed the church of God and now I'm becoming a part of the church of God. I'd imprisoned and killed Christians. Third, look at verse 15. Paul's conversion shows character and honesty and humility because he was content whenever truth came to him, but he had to receive it. 
Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. He thinks he's already in all right God's sight. He thinks he's already doing everything that he ought to be doing as a persecutor of the church. He believes that he is, but he is willing to take a different route entirely. Christianity is a lot like that. Christianity reaches people who thought that they were pretty happy and content the way things were, and they found out that the way things were were not the way things could be in Jesus. Next. It was against the norm of the time. The norm of the time. The norm was you would be taught by the apostles. Paul says, I didn't get my message from the apostles. I didn't receive it from them. I received my revelation from God himself. That's what he says. He says, you know, for a while I spent time here and there, and then I went to Jerusalem, and I spent 15 days, 15 days with Peter and a little bit of time with James uh, uh, and 15 days. Now let me tell you this. The Lord took three years and trained the apostles. And as much as I appreciate Peter, I don't think Peter's going to get done in 15 days what it took Jesus three years and the coming of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. Can I get an amen there? Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Appreciate it. Now, it doesn't make sense. Everything about this passage let you realize that I am probably the most unlikely person in all the world to have become a Christian, but I did because I could not look against all of that evidence and say, no, I won't do it. I couldn't do that. And then when you look at verse 23, he says the radical transformation that occurred in me helped people everywhere to realize now the former persecutor is the persecuted for the faith. And then the chapter ends with people glorifying God because of the change that had come about in Paul's life. What a book, what a chapter, what a message. Don't mess with the gospel of Jesus. Any attempt to improve it by addition or subtraction only negates its beauty and power. Anything. When we talk about the gospel and what God has done in Jesus to save, Galatians 1, 3, and 4, how one responds to God's gracious provision matters. Faith in Him matters. It must be based on what is true, Romans 10, 17. It must believe that faith must, that Jesus is the Son of God, John 20, verses 30 and 31, based on evidence. And that faith, that belief, 
shows itself in repentance, a change of heart because of a change of mind. That leads to a change in life and direction. Somebody has said repentance is one of the Bible's hardest commands, but if one really understands and repents, most of the battle is fought. I believe they're right. Responding to the gospel requires confession of Jesus with our mouth as the Son of God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And it requires baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible says, Galatians 3.27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. There are conditions that must be applied personally to receive the blessing of forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean we merit it or deserve it, but it means we look to God to do what He promised. He will add us to the body of Christ because we have submitted humbly and lovingly to the gospel of Christ. The lesson is yours. Let us stand and sing.